Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Market Maker podcast series. And just to give you a quick update before we begin, last week for regular listeners, you'll know I gave a call to arms for our Spotify ratings and we were at 40 this time last week. We are now at 111. So that is a nice response. So it's exponential. Yeah, thank you. And look, we put out a pretty lumpy target of 250 by the end of Q1. But look, come on, guys, at this rate, let's let's just get it done by (laughs) mid-Feb and then we can chill, basically. So yeah, thank you to everyone who did that. It is super easy to do. It really helps us out. It gets the podcast out to as many people as possible. We all know how these algos work on these platforms. So it'd be really appreciated if you if you do enjoy what you hear, just jump on Spotify, hit the ratings button. That's all it takes. Uh, and yeah, it really helps us out. So good stuff on that. Secondly, if you did listen to the last episode, we had a special guest, Carti, who, who jumped in for a little 10-minute <laughs> slot in the middle of an assessment center Go back and listen if you haven't. It's just pure class. But he sent me a message. He said, for one, thank you, Piers. He said he's had a huge response on LinkedIn. Um, people hooking up and saying, really? well, you know, great job on the pod and, uh, and so forth. And obviously great to get his network boosted. But he got the job. Right. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do mean, they, Do they know? he? I guess they don't know he kind of did a podcast halfway through. His, his interview well I, I can tell you now they probably wouldn't be able to tell because he's such a cool yeah. customer he would have just walked back in there and nailed it well so done, shout out Carty. to Carty. yeah well done absolutely hats off 
Um, but look, a couple of highlights for the week. And then as usual, we'll delve into two or three of these main topics. So just running you through. Obviously, the main headline act of the week was the hawkish FOMC not ruling out hikes at every meeting this year. That was kind of the big surprise. And we'll delve into that in a moment and talk about it a little bit more. But stocks have stabilized, but yields still remaining higher. Gold still under pressure, but things we'll get into. Other things, geopolitical temperature, still pretty hot at the moment. Russia-Ukraine still in focus. Boris Johnson just loves to party. He just cannot get enough. I mean, I don't know where it ends at this point. Um, but I did, I did catch a bit of PMQs actually on Wednesday. And there was a really great comment that Boris said, actually, because Keir Starmer, um, Boris is brilliant, by the way. Every time he, the, they go, the prime minister has not met the ministerial code. You should resign. Boris just goes, we have the fastest vaccine rollout in all of the, the world. We are the fastest growing G7. And every time he asks it, he goes, but we have the fastest vaccine rollout. <laughs> it's just so hilarious. But he made a really good comment. Um, Keir Starmer came out and then he said, um, you're a lawyer, not a leader. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, he's just that's, absolutely annihilated him there. That's nail on the head as well. Yeah. Oh, it was... It's really difficult to watch because obviously you want someone to just hand it to Boris, but no one can, no one's one's capable. (laughs) It's just he, and then he just bullies them uh, in the box, so to speak. And uh, yeah, but anyhow, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about Boris or politics. So you're safe. Anyone who's listening, Uh, but other things we've had are earnings, Microsoft, Tesla, and actually this is a bit of a late night special because normally Piers and I would do this on a Friday morning, but we're both busy. So we're jumping on at quarter to nine on a Thursday night. And Piers is, is chugging down a, a cold brew at the moment. So, um, well, you know, he... <laughs> it's been a long day. So one of the things that's going to happen whilst we're on air is Apple's earnings are going to come out. And so, Hopefully, actually, by the time we get towards the back end, there'll be enough detail around. We can give some color on that as well. Um, other things, Goldman City, Bank of America analysts, obviously markets all selling off. They're all saying let's all buy the dip. So they're still banging that drum at the moment. Um, FTX US, the American affiliate of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, they've raised $400 million in their first external fundraising round. That gives them a valuation of $8 billion, so being one of the world's most valuable private crypto firms. So we'll see what Coinbase has to say about that. And then McDonald's, did you see that? They brought out the Chicken Big Mac. What? 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 The Chicken Big Mac in the UK, limited time only. What? Get it while you can, Piers Curran. I'm not not sure how I feel about that. That, that's not right, is it? Do you know what? I tweeted this uh, earlier in the week and there was real mixed feelings yeah, about a chicken Big Mac. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, that's the first I've heard of it. I'm not a fan already. That's not for me. It's not right. <laughs> All right. Well, when I see you on Monday, I'll get you one and we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, but look, tweet the tweet of the week oh. has to go to... No question. Not Elon Musk. Actually, quite silent, Elon Musk. I mean, 
not surprised his shares are getting battered at the moment yeah. but that's normally when you hear the most out of him to be quite fair so i'm sure there's a musk tweet coming um but actually the president of el salvador uh nayib bukele who we would have talked about a few months back because he's really gone full board bitcoin as, as a lot of you will know and as we've had this crypto sell-off he's obviously been buying in and he's trying to really pump the fact that god forbid this thing keeps going down so he's been quite vocal i think he picked up a uh, 410 Bitcoin or something at the end of last week, which, you know, these things don't come cheap. So that's a fair outlay. But he tweeted on Monday, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him verbatim. He said, most people go in when the price is up, but the safest and most profitable moment to buy is when the price is down. It's not rocket science with a hands up, a little emoji with a smiley face. So then he adds, so invest a piece of your McDonald's paycheck in Bitcoin. So obviously a little side pop-up, the US and their stimmy checks. And then he finishes the tweet by saying, now go back to flip some more burgers, you lazy fuck. <laughs> well, F-V-C-K. So, you know, he's keeping it above board, but the guy's incredible. And then the US, uh, uh, Biden, I think, called him out saying, you know, this is lunacy. And he tweeted him back saying, you drama queen. So... <laughs> I mean, this is the world we live in right now. I mean, it's all gone God, a bit bonkers. It. It's so, so bonkers. I, I absolutely love it. I, I want this guy. Get, let's get, get <laughs> Boris out. No, 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 no. I'm going to message him and say, you've got to come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let's just get him let's on. Let's do it. Let's get him on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, before we talk about uh, the Fed and some of the data, we've had GDP today. It's Thursday we're recording this. But I wanted to I wanted to test you out, Piers, to see if you can if we do a bit of a guessing game. Go on, man. So ready. there's a commodity that is heading for its longest rally since 1991 this mm. week. Longest rally as in what 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 the long most consecutive up days, or are you talking? The most percentage gain? I think when they're referring to it, I think they're talking about the, the number of days. I'll, I'll give you an extra tip. Go on. And I'm going to mention the weather. Ah, so is it... I'm going to say... Ooh. I'm going to give you an extra tip. I'm going to give you another one. Go on. Well, it could be, North, the weather could be. So North America. All right, so is it, is it oil? Matt gas? Softs. Ah, wheat. Could be, <laughs> but it's not. Go on. Orange juice. Oh. It's gone a bit under the radar. Orange right, juice. I, yeah, I haven't. Is played. absolutely smashing it. A frost. He's right. threatening the groves in Florida right now, top supplier. And yes. stockpiles have plunged out down in other key areas besides Florida. California produces the most fresh fruit market in the US, is expected to see a decline this season. And then Texas, third ranked, is also down. These numbers, overall US orange production 
will fall 11% from a year earlier, 25% from two years ago. Right. Missed that one. Yeah, not bad little trade, the OJ market. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right, well, look, let's, uh, let's get into the GDP first. And I want to talk about that and then jobs. And that leads us, I think, into the Fed. And so today, US advanced GDP. So just for those who are not familiar with how the data points work in the US. So with GDP, you basically, it's backward looking, of course, and we get three readings as we go through the quarter. You get the advanced, the preliminary, and the final reading. And so this is our first opportunity to see how Q4 performed. Now, everyone was expecting a pretty decent bounce back. So going from the 2.3% up to 5.5, it's just today's number came in at 6.9%. So it was a forecast buster, if you like, fueled by rebuilding of infantries. It caps the strongest year since the 1980s. Uh, although Omicron will have likely impacted growth in the near term, most economists have the expectations that solid growth this year amid expectations of well, I'm going to say expectations of easing inflationary pressures and supply chain challenges. Um, and that will, will kind of help that picture. The other thing we had today that came out alongside that was applications for US state unemployment insurance. So jobless claims, they fell for the first time in four weeks. They did have a, quite a meaningful uptick when the US was going through its worst bout of the Omicron um, spread, or they were still really dealing with Delta at the time to a certain extent. Um, and so that's also come down quite a bit. And so I guess a lot of this feeding into the context of what the Fed have been thinking, have been seeing, and have been making decisions upon, which is the shape of the economy now, but subsequently the actions to do in order to counteract then lifting rates, tightening policy, but having an economy that can handle it, which I guess is partly answered by some of these data points. But to give you a quick run through, and then great to get your take, Piers, on your, your thoughts. But the main headline from the FMC meeting was that Fed Chair Powell unsurprisingly back to March liftoff. So even though that's a slight move away from the three of their official projections just a few weeks ago, they've communicated well enough that that was going to happen. So that wasn't really the surprise. The big headline, of course, was he said they would not roll out a hike at every meeting. Now, just to remind everyone, there's eight meetings a year for the Fed. Their forecasts say they're going to do three. Officially, the market was positioned for four, which they are now likely to deliver. But the fact that he said that, and there's seven meetings left, did throw a bit of a spanner in the works last night because there was almost a relief rally in the first statement release because the market was like, phew, They've not hiked immediately. There was a tiny, <laughs> tiny prospect of that. Um, they've not kind of explicitly mentioned the balance sheet or anything like that. So he kind of relief rallied. And then he started speaking in the press conference and he dropped the bombshell about every, every meeting's a live meeting, essentially, about the balance sheet. Um, he said they'll begin balance sheet production after starting rate hikes and that it will, will, will occur in a predictable way. He added they have not made decisions on the timing and pace. And actually, when he said that comment, the markets quite liked it. And actually, at the point then, which, to be fair, from my perspective, I don't know about you, Pierce, but I thought that's exactly what he was going to say about the balance sheet, because 
I don't know why the market had this obsession that there was going to be such clarity and immediacy to that when there really wasn't any necessary to do so. It's kind of like firing two bullets in a yeah. six bullet chamber when just shoot one first <laughs> and leave some spare, surely. Um, I don't know what you read into that, that comment well, on the timing on the balance sheet. Well, my problem with his comment is that he used the word predictable. Now, I can't predict anything now that the Fed's going to do, given how they've pivoted so ridiculously sharply. And fine, mm. you can talk about the data and inflation and actually their right to do so and, and whatever. But this has been the biggest, sharpest change up in policy that I've ever seen. Outside of, oh, hang on, outside of, uh, you know, other than 2008, and 2020, that's about crisis stimulus. Outside of those two, uh, this is the fastest turnaround in monetary policy outlook that I've ever seen. So who, who's to say what's going to happen next? I think this is one of the problems the Fed have with not getting it right last year. And it was super difficult, but I'm going to be critical anyway. You know, they, the transitory thing, they got wrong, and, and so did I. But um, they, they've turned around so fast. I think that when he says it's going to happen in a predictable manner, I just, I just don't think anybody can confidently predict that. So, you know, when he, when he comes out and says we, we might hike seven times this year, I mean, that's not – I think markets probably over kind of – overreacted he doesn't mean they're going to hike seven times i mean the last time i was just having a look back the last time they hiked more than four times in one 12 one calendar year i think i think you've got to go i think i might say you've got to go back to 2005 um certainly they didn't they certainly didn't hike but the fastest in the last hiking cycle which was 2015 through to 2019 was four hikes in one calendar year so the idea of seven is quite extreme and he keeps ratcheting up the hawkish language obviously a lot of people were hoping given that stocks should come off sharply and crypto is massively down and a lot some not a lot some were praying that the market reaction was enough for now the fed to just pull back a little bit from their kind of hawkish trajectory um that that was kind of wishful thinking you know in the end when you got a gdp figure that came out obviously after the Fed meeting, but of course they they would have known what it was going to be, and you know, pow very powerful GDP figure, and of course inflation stays high. And we'll talk a bit about commodity pricing during this pod when we kind of think about the Russia-Ukraine situation, but and, and you know, tie in China um, and and their kind of zero tolerance on on COVID. There's plenty of risks out there that inflation stays very high. Um, so. So yeah, I'm not I'm not particularly happy with Powell these days, and so oh, I don't I can't predict that. that. Now that's the that's the quickest falling out of love I've ever yeah. witnessed. <laughs> can't predict. I think they'll hike in March for sure. I mean that's mm. done, right? I mean obviously the question now I think it was Namora came out today. I don't think that they're, they're alone either in um, starting to uh, predict a fifty basis point hike in March. 
Right. So markets are pricing in now five at the moment for the year and also the prospect of 50 basis point move in March. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so far, the reaction has been 10-year real US bond yields despite the highest close yesterday night, 19 months. Gold has been one. It's just looking at silver getting a bit of a battering again today as well. Um, gold uh, falling the most in two months as well. Yeah. So it's definitely been a further extension of some of those moves. It's really hard for markets. I mean, you saw that like super short-term, like Wednesday night. Um, you know, equities just didn't know what to do. Um, mm. You know, rallying higher and then coming off sharply. And obviously we've been in this multi-week downturn and, and, and particularly, you know, thinking about, you know, just stocks. And let's just take the NASDAQ, for example. It's been three brutal weeks to the downside. And I mean, as I'm looking right now, they're just about, well, threatening to make new lows again on this kind of three week week sell-off um and so it's been pretty brutal for stocks right and um i think that what i was looking at which i i was really confused when stocks started to rally i was like and even before the meeting i think people were hoping that he's going to be less hawkish and stocks are going to go by the dip by the dip it's going to be less hawkish and i i wasn't happy with that view and i definitely didn't share it and actually what happened during that session that I took note of more than any other market was actually, was actually two markets, but was actually what happened to the US yield curve. Because the short end of the curve, so that's shorter duration yields went up sharply off the back of comments like every meeting's a live meeting. Oh my God, 50 basis point hike in March. You know, this is super aggressive. So that's short-term yields going up sharply. And at the same time, you had the 10-year yield dropping. So you had what's called a flattening of the yield curve. Um, that's never a good signal um, in my eyes. And, and often you'll see, you know, you can say, oh, all right, the mechanics of the market and how it reacts to, to rate hikes or, or the risk of rate hikes, you know, I get that. But flattening of the yield curve for me is definitely a signal that things aren't, aren't okay. You know, you saw volatility has been up quite strongly. And, you know, I, I still think there's, a, there's another leg here on this risk-off phase. Um, and I, and what, what will it take to stop this sell-off? I, I think it's got to be, I don't know, something like a lower-than-expected inflation print. But we've got to wait a couple of weeks yet till we get into the mid-February, start getting January inflation data. You're going to need that. Or, I mean, I was going to say the Fed come out and they're a bit more or they're less hawkish, but I mean, I can't see that happening given what they've been saying. Every week they get more hawkish. Um, so there's no point waiting around for them to be more dovish. So, um, so yeah, I, I do think there's, another, there's probably another leg here on this, this down move is my, is my kind of gut feel at the moment. Yeah, I was just um, trying to have a quick look. There was someone I saw pointed out that there's currently, well, actually, it's next week. The Senate panel are holding a hearing on Raskin, Cook, and Jefferson. And these are the three candidates to fill the remaining spots right. at the Fed. And all three are doves. Mm. Now, I'm not sure where they slot in. Um, yeah. at this point in time without without double checking and looking but obviously i don't uh, 
these things need to go through approval processes, things like that. But certainly that would be interesting okay. if there's a comp composition change on the board and these people are able to vote, then yeah. um, that could be an interesting twist. No, will they be, will, will they be voters or you, you're not sure? I'd have to, I assume that they would be because it's normally, the regional presidents are normally set and it's on a year, 12 month rotation on the calendar year. So yeah. the fact that they're coming in at this point would be indicative of the, their yeah. board seats right, to be okay. filled. And I yeah. think these were seats that were a legacy from Trump never filled them either. And so there's always been um, some spare slots there. So that could be, yeah, just a little side point, but. Are these not the slots opening up because of your, your guys doing their insider trading? Uh, <laughs> Partially. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just, that's that. Now that's another story, isn't it? From, from politicians like Pelosi and her husband yeah. and whomever to the members of the federal reserve. I mean, no wonder there's such a, kind of motivation for that whole wall street bets yeah. community i mean I that is just too much <laughs> they should get locked up firstly yeah. or just let me know their positions before they <laughs> put them on either way it's fine <laughs> all right well look let, let's move over and talk a little bit about earnings um apple's actually just about to hit the tape any moment but we'll we'll crack on with microsoft they came out earlier in the week, better than expected earnings, uh, both top and bottom line. Stock actually dropped. I think at the time I, I saw it down about six percent. Yeah, and it was, and I was seeing all these numbers come in, and it was like, ping positive, ping positive, ping positive, ping beat expectation. And you're like, poof, the stock just dropped off a cliff, <laughs> and you're like, kind of unsurprising. Because you know these 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 stocks are so they've been so strong, they're yeah. just doomed to fail. It's like everyone is so positive. It's like they can never outperform that the best quote, market's hunger. Well, to, to your exact point, the best quote I saw just reading about it was that um, I can't remember who said it now actually, but anyway, it doesn't matter. They said that um, yeah, really you know solid performance by Microsoft, but not the usual beat we have seen. So, I mean, what's the point in having expectations, right, and forecasts? So if they beat expectations, but if you don't beat expectations by a yeah. large enough amount, <laughs> then that's negative. I mean, surely yeah. it should be a smaller positive, right? But yeah. so, I mean, human psychology is it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, to put some numbers to that argument, Revenue from Azure and other cloud services, which is their main kind of one of the main focal points that people look at, it merely met expectations by growing forty six percent. And the, the reason why the reason why growing by forty six percent in a quarter is a disaster is that they've grown for four quarters over fifty percent. <laughs> so forty six percent is just not good enough, I'm afraid. Um, yep. However. And this is a thing to be aware of in terms of how uh, corporate earnings work post-market is that you get the initial hit of, of numbers and a flurry of post-market trade. But then the company comes out and has a conference call. And typically that, you know, if an earnings drops at 9 p.m. London after the closing bell, the conference calls half an hour later. And they came out and they said Azure revenue growth rate would pick up in the third, fiscal third quarter from the second. And then the shares just went Voop. And we actually ended up going up 1% um, by the actual close of extended trade. 
So, yeah, it was... These numbers are so insane because when you say, so what did you say, four quarters in a row of more higher than 50% growth rate? At or above 50%, yeah. This isn't a small, <laughs> it's not like a small startup. Their cloud business, now it's, it's north of 20 billion per quarter. And it's growing like it's, like it's just started. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, all their, num- all their numbers are actually, when you start looking at them, the Windows licenses increased by 25% in Q4. Uh, obviously, they've moved into the gaming space as well. That's yeah. going to now represent, obviously, a growing significant portion of total revenue. So that would be interesting to watch in the next coming um, earnings reports that we that we see. One, one stat that I thought plays in, the, in a little bit to the metaverse-type race that we've talked about many times but they've got 1.4 billion monthly active devices running a Windows 10 or 11. Active devices, 1.4 billion. Yeah. I mean, that's a staggering number. They never talk about it. You know, they, they've never kind of, I guess, fallen into that game of, you know, it's all about users and, you know, you know monthly active users. They, they've never kind of, They've never dragged themselves down to, yeah. to the... I always think that that's, you know, we've just talked about divisional growth being like a, a difficult thing to balance. I think that when you go down that active user route, yeah, that's a tough gig to, to yeah. keep that running. I, th- um, I mean, obviously all the news about Microsoft's been about this, 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 this deal, um, but, you know, and, and a bigger move into gaming, but I was looking at their, um, their, their revenue on the gaming side. That only grew by eight percent so it's interesting that they're looking to you know put put a huge outlay towards growing the gaming part of their business even though it's growing growth is pretty much negligible when you kind of sit it alongside what's going on in its cloud services division but yeah i mean give you some numbers their xbox content and services that was up 65 percent in q4 of 2020 2020 right so that's peak of, uh, yeah. of like the, the, the episode of where we were. And since then, that's gone from 65 to 30 to 40 to 30 to minus 4% to 2%. Right. But that is a very good point because these year-on-year comps, they're now, it's like right at the worst because they're, they're now, the annual comps are now comping right. back to the heart of a lockdown, you know, and when Corona first hit and, that's difficult to, to beat. So actually, I'll take that back. So an 8%, well, I got the stat, an 8% revenue growth on gaming in, in quarter four 2021 versus 20, quarter four 2020, actually. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, there's gaming and then there's content and services. So the, right. I guess these metrics are split out in different ways. Yeah, yeah. But the other area of real big growth for Microsoft, search and news advertising. Oh, nice. So, you know, these guys... You know, they just they just put their heads down and deliver. I'm afraid. Well, I was telling you last week the big four <laughs> tech. You know, they're increasingly overlapping and overlapping, and I mm. think forty percent of their revenues now overlap. So yeah, search. You now, if you're going to tell me, yeah, one of the big tech firms is, you know, their growth in search and, and news advertising. You know, the last one you think of is Microsoft. Mm. Well, forty percent in the quarter, up forty eight percent the prior quarter. So. 
yeah. making some headway. But all right, the other one was Tesla. Yeah, um, they came out. EPS beat revenue. Firm beat. Uh, they said they delivered the whopping figure of still less than one million vehicles worldwide <laughs> uh, in 2021. But that was up 87 percent from yeah. a year before. I mean, geez. Yeah. I mean, they have. I mean, it, what a story. Twelve months. It's been. <laughs> It's impressive, especially when you factor in the obviously supply chain constraints that has been hampering, well, pretty much everyone, but particularly the automotive industry. And so actually, to be fair to Elon, to deliver an 87% growth rate on output in that year where we had that supply chain constraint kind of spike is, is impressive. But again, going on, going on the trend, growth rate trends, one of the reasons why Tesla came off, I mean, all right, their share price was a bit volatile off this. There was ups and downs, but one of the kind of down legs came off the point around uh, Musk kind of guided towards a 50% growth rate in vehicle uh, output next year. Or sorry, I should say this year, 2022, 50% growth, which of course is a lot less than 87% growth from the year before. And the problem Tesla have, if their volume growth rate is going to start to decelerate now when they're only when they're producing less than a million vehicles then you know that's not very it's not very good is it <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I think i think we give elon enough of a hard time so we, we won't uh, we won't batter well, well, actually I, mean, I will say though can i just say on here on the earnings call um you know they obviously all the analysts were banging on about you know, what's your volume output going to be next year? You know, what's going on with the supply chain constraints? Blah, blah, blah. And Musk said, look, you know, you're asking the wrong questions. He said, you know, and they were asking him about his other vehicles and his lorry and whatever else. And he was saying, look, and they were going, you know, how's it, are you going to be delivering a $25,000 vehicle next year? And he's going, look, you're all asking. <laughs> I bet he said, we have the fastest vaccine rollout <laughs> program. In all of the United States. No, go on. He, what, what did what he say? What he said was, you're asking the wrong question. He said that it's all about um, us solving full self-driving technology in 2022. That's what we're going to We will solve, this is a quote, full self-driving technology in 2022. And he said, I would be shocked if I did not achieve full self-driving safer than a human this year. I will caveat that by saying he said pretty much the same kind of thing every year for the last four or five years. And he hasn't quite delivered on that one yet. But anyway, um, I mean, that's just that's just, you know, that's just CEO tactics of like smoke and mirrors. Yeah, you know, there's a fire over there. Let's just make a noise over here. And then no one everyone forgets about and the underlying to... fundamental problems that you're facing and it's but that's what that. that's what he yeah oh he's a jedi master level yeah, of that absolutely one of the best yeah um i just saw robin hood just came out just dropped on the wires while ah. we're doing this down 10 percent initially aftermarket uh, i was just looking at some numbers their stock is now off nearly 90 percent of its most recent high since the trading app launched on its debut last, well, it was only in the summer. It's not oh, even yeah. a year old yet. Um, shares are down 
for the year. So not looking good for, for that. I mean, they were so late to the party, weren't they? Do you remember by the yeah. time they actually got that underway, that was what, five months after GameStop, six months? Yeah, the time. And then they had was... all those problems and then the whole Citadel situation and the PR rap that they had. Yeah, the they regulatory had problems. They IPO'd and then it would kind of hit the market about $35. This is August last year, rallied to 55. Mm. Then it's been south ever since. So yeah, 55 down to 11 now. Well, and and more lower. I'm, I'm not looking at the aftermarket prices. So yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Apple's not out, so we'll, we'll pivot back to that. But I just wanted to have a quick word on Deutsche Bank. Because mm. I, I definitely remember a few years ago, um, Deutsche Bank, when it, when it kind of breached 10 euros and, and we were all talking about it at the time. One of our colleagues, in fact, was working. His wife was working at Deutsche and we always used to have a little bit of a jibe saying, how's, how's her bonus going and <laughs> how's those how's those stocks holdings going in terms yeah. of her pay packet? <laughs> um, but yeah, phenomenal fight back really from... And I guess for a lot of the students that listen to the pod who generally are of uh, a demographic where you might not have been around where Deutsche still is, but was like the most cutting edge, powerful, dominant um, kind of bank to be at. Yeah. I remember talking to uh, Bilal Hafiz, who is the global head of research at Deutsche for 15, 20 years. And he, he moved from JP, investment bank, division yeah. to jump and go into Deutsche Bank, I think in 01. So yeah. 2000, 2001 was when I think they were just coming out, really making a, a, a real name for themselves. But basically they had a real, they've had a terrible time of it. And the earnings that came out this morning, they've closed out their most profitable year now in a decade. And so gaining fixed income trading, despite cost surging in the final few months, Deutsche like all banks are feeling the pain of compensation expenses rising sharply uh, at the moment. Um, revenue from advising on deals, capital raisings. So again, very similar for the sector. That was up uh, sharply in the fourth quarter. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to just mention that really. So yeah, in it, trading, trading, there was a drop in trading in the fourth quarter, um, but the actual advising on deals and capital raising more than outweighed that. It rose nearly 30% for a year earlier, uh, posting the eighth straight quarter of year-on-year -year growth. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's good to see them back. I mean, it has been... I mean, they're a classic um, case, or a little bit like you might think about banks like Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, is kind of the UK's version in a way, um, whereby in the first, in the noughties, they just went, they just went super aggressive in terms of expansion, you know, expansion everywhere, you know, taking as much risk as they possibly could. And then the crisis hit and they were kind of left holding the bucket and massively over leveraged and were, you know, carrying so much kind of toxic debt and, you know, almost went down. I mean, they were too big to fail. They actually, yeah, I don't know how, but they avoided a kind of bailout from, from their government. I remember it was Merv, Mervyn King, wasn't it? Um, I think it was the, the governor at that period. I remember yeah, right. there was a phone call that happened because 
I think there's some really good books. There's like Hank Paulson, who was the US Treasury Secretary at the time. There's like these accounts of the nights of when yeah. these discussions were happening where it was like the end of the world scenario. <laughs> and I think it was that um, RBS had a shortfall for the next day's opening of business of 200 billion. <laughs> and so they had to have an overnight lending from the central bank for one day to open for business. <laughs> I mean, and they had I mean, to they, do it. Well, they were the to, to show you the sort of crazy growth they went for. They, the, the RBS were the biggest bank in the world just before the crisis hit. Anyway, Deutsche in a similar vein went massively aggressive on growth and and then got smashed. And you know, obviously, then they've got the eurozone debt crisis to kind of deal with. You know, on top of the great financial crisis. But look, they they've been, you know, kind of. Uh, sort of a zombie bank, just just about kind of on the edge and, and kind of surviving for a decade. And I, I can't tell you, they've been through several CEOs, each one coming in with a, you know, really confident, right, this time, this is our turnaround package. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do X, Y, Z, right? This is the one only for about 12, 24 months later, that one shipped out because it hasn't worked again. And it, it's been a decade of... Um, yeah, it's survival. And actually, it's nice to just see them there. It looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel and they're really starting to kind of pick themselves back up off the floor. Yeah, and, and when we talk about um, these kind of too big to fail, so th this is kind of harping back to what's now been implemented since the financial crisis was the idea that players like RBS, Deutsche, were so integral to the functioning of the system that they pose a systemic risk if they were to fail. And by this is, these are interbank dealers. So they're dealing and lending to other financial institutions who are then lending out to their you know, parties. And so this is how that spider's web uh, kind of can fold and the, the impact it can have. And now this is where things like Basel III come in, where they, they're accountable now to kind of the, the buff capital buffers and, the, uh, these types of measurements where to safeguard themselves from these future future downturns so you know if you were interested in you getting your kind of knowledge up to speed just just type in like basel three you can get like lists of who are these defined siffies they're called so systemically important financial institutions and that's good to know kind of the lay of the land and you know even talking about this i remember barclays going through that period in 2008, 2009, and this is where the UK's version of ring fencing, which is now the, the subsequent legislation that came in, which is to separate out the investment banking division. So when Piers talks about leverage, you know, this is when he's talking about the fact that I'm a Barclays customer and I'm like, crikey, my savings are so you can go long S&P just as, <laughs> whenever you want. Oh yeah, or subprime basically. Yeah. And so we'll buy 415 bitcoins. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, you might not have thought that, but that was the state of play that they used to use that on their balance sheet as uh, assets, if you like our yeah. mortgages, our savings, whereas that is what's changed radically between um, then and now. And also I'd say, you know, when, there's, there's obviously lots of conversations around this, but you know, it is a future episode of, a huge crisis like that happening again possible well of course it is possible 
but there are mechanisms now that that should safeguard against becoming to that close a situation. Um, but yeah, they were they were some hairy evenings. <laughs> yeah, and actually, one of the I'll I'll give a book recommendation. Although most people listening have probably heard, seen the film, mm. talking about too big to fail. I, th- I think the best book of that of the crisis. I mean, there's loads of them, but yeah, too big to fail. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, I think the films the films good. Actually, the movie's one of the best movies about that time. But you know, like with most kind of movies, it doesn't quite get get to the finer detail that the book. Kind of really goes into. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And some of the some of the late night meetings that were going on. Like I remember, you know, what, with Alistair Darling, who was the great name, but the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, and basically vetoing Barclays buying Lehman's. And that was like a Sunday night late phone call mm-hmm. between Alistair Darling and, and the and the president. And and basically, Darling said. Uh, we refuse to import US toxic banking. I'm vetoing the deal. Barclays are not buying Lehman's. And then the next day, Monday, markets opened, Lehman's tanked again. And then that was it. They went, they, 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 they went down. Yeah. I mean, if you if you've never heard of Alistair Darling, there's a guy with a <laughs> set of eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> But look, let's let's move on to the final topic, which is on the geopolitical front. I'll update on what the latest is, but I I've, uh, I know you, Piers, you've got a good angle on this to to kind of bring about a new way of looking at this from a market perspective. Yeah. So Russia uh, gave a critical initial response to U.S. security proposals aimed at defusing this this ongoing crisis over Ukraine, saying they failed to address Moscow's demands to prevent NATO expansion. Though the Kremlin did indicate talks are likely to continue. So this coming amid weeks of intense uh, diplomacy over the buildup of more than 100,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's border, which I'm sure everyone's seen and, and read about. Uh, the US and European Union have warned of swift and severe sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine. Moscow promises, <laughs> says there's no plans to attack, though Russia continues to amass forces uh, near the border at, at this point in time. So I think most people have probably come across this because it's such a mainstream um, s- story. But but away from the obvious, what are other things being impacted by this potential conflict? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things. One's a geopolitical one that's, I mean, probably only marginally away from the obvious, but I'll touch on it before I then want to spend most of the time talking about commodities. Um, but I just saw a headline in the FT just grabbed my attention earlier, which was Beijing had come out and flagged its support for Russia, which isn't a surprise. But um, they were saying that Moscow had reasonable security concerns that should be taken seriously uh, by the US and its allies. And, and obviously, I mean, just kind of taking that one step further, I mean, clearly, you know, Beijing have got their own a very similar situation with Taiwan, uh, as kind of Russia does with the Ukraine, and, and both believe that the respective countries should be brought within their nation. And obviously, that, that kind of China-Taiwan risk has, has always, it's always been filtering there on the, on the kind of, on the edges. But it will be interesting to see, 
what Putin does, and obviously we don't know yet, but not only what Putin does, but is that then the precursor? It's almost is, are China just basically saying, look, let's see what let's see how Putin gets on here. And maybe that could be a roadmap for how we maybe deal with, with the kind of next step in terms of power. Well, you know what China's doing as well on the side to just make this a little extra spicy is, you know, they just pick up the bat phone straight to Kim Jong-un, fire up the press, go on, shoot another one of your ballistic missiles, uh, Kim. So North Korea fired two more short-range ballistic missiles on Thursday. Yeah. And that is the sixth round of missile tests this month. Yeah, so that's the that's the that's, most for a long time. Yeah, a couple of years, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And so that doesn't okay. just happen randomly. Yeah. You can go back and that always, the intensity of their missile testing in North Korea always comes when there's more, um, yeah. let's say, confrontation emerging between these, these powers. And I think look, geopolitical risk is always there in some form and it kind of goes up and down and up and down. And, and obviously right here at the start of 2022, it's absolutely on the up. And obviously there's then you start plotting the steps. Well, what happens if this, if this happens and then that happens and then this happens and all of a sudden you're not too far, not too many steps away from hang on World War Three, right? So it can quickly be, get quite sensationalist and, and actually really concerning. But you know, I think, let's see, obviously, if, if, if a full-scale invasion of the Ukraine kicks off, well, clearly then that will become the dominant theme for global markets. Forget about Powell hiking seven times. Forget about stubbornly high inflation, right? It's, it's then that becomes number one. But outside of that, um, you know, what's happening here, I, I want to talk about the commodity market because Russia is very, very, very pivotal for global commodities. And I know the obvious one's natural gas. And we always talk about how Europe is so dependent on natural gas and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and, and all the rest of it. And fine, we had a bit of a natural gas crisis in Europe last year and natural gas prices are super high. Fine. And we understand that Russia are key, you know, it's, it's a potential kind of weapon, if you like, for Russia to kind of turn off the taps. But then, hang on a minute, they rely a lot on revenue from selling that gas. So not quite as straightforward uh, a weapon or a retaliatory weapon, as, it, as you might think. But there's there's other commodities that Russia are super, you know, re, the, the world is very reliant on Russian exports. I mean, oil, I guess people will know about as well. They are the second largest exporter of oil. But again, and this is it with on the West side, if sanctions get implemented, then if, if sanctions restrict Russia from doing things like export oil, well, then that will come back to kind of bite the West a little bit, because if that drives up oil prices, well, then, of course, it means consumers across the planet are going to have to pay more money for their energy. So, again, it's quite tricky. But outside of gas and oil, there's plenty of other commodities that maybe you're not quite aware of that Russia are really important in. So if we talked about metals to start with. So um, stuff like even aluminium and copper, you know, top, top level um, metals in terms of, you know, consumption volumes. Uh, Russia produces one tenth of the world's aluminium, one tenth of the world's copper. It's when you get into the bit more kind of specialist stuff like palladium, um, which is a big component in things like catalytic converters, for example, um, Russia uh, export 43% of the world's palladium. 
and then switch over to softs. And here's um, the reason why I said wheat in, in that kind of pop quiz at the start of the podcast, which I failed at miserably. Wheat was on my mind because I've just been looking at the wheat market. Um, Russia is the biggest global exporter of wheat and the second biggest global exporter of wheat just so happens to be the Ukraine. And in the Ukraine, it's the eastern part of the Ukraine where most of their kind of wheat farms are. And so if there's a conflict, then the wheat market um, could actually be a very interesting, well, I think it's a great barometer to just kind of measure you know, what market, we always think about right, what market is the best barometer to really, what's the one that's got the finger on the pulse, that's got the, that's the best gauge of you know this this risk and i think for me it could well be the wheat market particularly uh vigilant on at the moment and it depends on if there is an invasion and the scale of that invasion but but certainly i would say wheat is one of the big commodity markets that will have them the largest reaction um so there you go oh that's good good intel there so get your get your wheat glasses out and uh <laughs> be tracking that i'm sure we'll update next week but i've just i just saw apple just hit the tape yeah they're up two percent up after market so a couple of quick headline numbers eps 210 above 190 revenues 100 123.95 billion this is a quarter just yeah. to remind you, that's above expectations of 119. Yeah. 119, we're expecting. iPhone uh, revenues, 71.6 estimated that's, that's on the street, 67.7. Yep, so better on that. The only one I can see weak initially, iPad sales were, were weaker uh, than expected. Services was a beat, Mac was a beat, iPhone's a beat, as they said. Um, yeah, from the top numbers, just seeing come down right now. Shares well, are up 2.6%. What did you say? One twenty-three billion on the top line. Yeah, that's that is the record ever quarter from any company in the history of mankind. It's the most money a single company has made ever in a three-month period. It's incredible, really. Their quarterly wearables, home, and accessories. That's quite well watched these days, as they look to kind of right. the numbers proportionately way smaller. It's what kind of headway are they making to alleviate burdens on iPhone focus and so on? That was 14.7 billion uh, versus 12.9 billion last year. I'm not sure what the estimate was, but it has moved up. Um, China net sales, 25.78 billion, increase from last year's 21.3. Um, yeah, that's all the numbers out so far. Nothing on their outlook yet, which is obviously key to really defining the sustainability of that initial aftermarket move. But all of the big stocks, to be fair, Microsoft had a bit of a, a dip and run, if you like, but actually they've all been fairly uninteresting from an actual reaction perspective. Uh, Microsoft actually finished fairly flat. Tesla was. Apple's now up about one and a half. So, yeah, not... Not the most exciting, but yeah, yeah, Apple's outlook still to come. So let's see. I guess what's interesting about Apple, like each quarter as it ticks by, their iPhone sales becomes a smaller proportion 
of that overall revenue, which is, you know, it was always there as Achilles heel in that they were a kind of one trick pony and over-reliant on one product line. But of course, you know, as time's gone on, they've been able to diversify in their wearables and their iCloud and App Store and all the rest of it have, you know, have kind of been coming good. And yeah, so it's not far off only, but well, still just above 50% of their revenues, I guess. But it used to be, you know, well north of 70, 75% of their revenues a few years back. So um, growing and diversifying. Yeah, they said the iPad was due to significant supply chain issues on iPad shortages. The CFO saying easing of supply chain issues in current quarter due to ongoing work with suppliers. Supply chain issues cost more than six billion in the quarter, but that was in line with their guidance. Not many companies can get away with that, can they? Six billion, it's fine. Well, that's what happened. That was the same last quarter as well, by the way. They, 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 Cook said that their revenues in, in, in the previous quarter were down six billion because of supply chain constraints. So, yeah, that's a pretty hefty run rate, isn't it? Six billion a quarter because of that supply chain supply chain constraint factor. Yeah, and the last comment just to wrap it up: expects to set March quarter revenue record for current quarter. Yeah. Well, that well, that is their big quarter. That that one into the end of the calendar year is their holiday season. That's always easily their biggest quarter in terms of um, revenue. So yeah, smashed it again by the looks of it. Cool. All right. Well, look, we'll wrap it there. I think we've we've hit our our usual hour slot. So thank you everyone again for listening. Uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying as well some of the feedback I'm getting for our newly kind of designed format. For our daily newsletter so i'll drop the link to that newsletter into the description of this podcast absolutely free of course hits your inbox at the end of every european trading day getting you up to speed so you don't have to watch this stuff we do it for you so check that out and also again feel free to drop us a rating i uh, really appreciate that and yeah have a great weekend see you guys thanks Piers. bye catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.